Section 17. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2, by Charles Dickens. Our School from Reprinted Pieces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2, Section 17, by Charles Dickens. Our School We went to look at it only this last midsummer, and found that the railway had cut it up root and branch. A great trunk line had swallowed the playground, sliced away the schoolroom, and pared off the corner of the house which, thus curtailed of its proportions, presented itself in a green stage of stucco profile-wise toward the road, like a forlorn flat-iron without a handle, standing on end. It seems as if our schools were doomed to be the sport of change. We have faint recollections of a preparatory day school which we have sought in vain, and which must have been pulled down to make a new street ages ago. We have dim impressions scarcely amounting to a belief that it was over a dyer's shop. We know that you went up steps to it, that you frequently grazed your knees in doing so, that you generally got your leg over the scraper in trying to scrape the mud off a very unsteady little shoe. The mistress of the establishment holds no place in our memory, but rampant on one eternal doormat, in an eternal entry long and narrow, is a puffy pug-dog with a personal animosity toward us, who triumphs over time. The bark of that baleful pug, a certain radiating way he had of snapping at our undefended legs, the ghastly grinning of his moist black muzzle and white teeth, and the insolence of his crisp tail curled like a pastoral crook, all live and flourish. From an otherwise unaccountable association of him with a fiddle, we conclude that he was of French extraction and his name Fidele. He belonged to some female, chiefly inhabiting a back parlour, whose life appears to us to have been consumed in sniffing and in wearing a brown beaver bonnet. For her he would sit up and balance cake upon his nose and not eat it until twenty had been counted. To the best of our belief we were once called in to witness this performance when, unable even in his milder moments to endure our presence, he instantly made at us cake and all. Why a something in mourning called Miss Frost should still connect itself with our preparatory school we are unable to say. We retain no impression of the beauty of Miss Frost, if she were beautiful, or of the mental fascinations of Miss Frost, if she were accomplished. Yet her name and her black dress hold an enduring place in our remembrance. An equally impersonal boy whose name has long since shaped itself unalterably into Mr. Maul's, is not to be dislodged from our brain. Retaining no vindictive feelings toward Maul's, no feeling whatever indeed, we infer that neither he nor we can have loved Miss Frost. Our first impression of death and burial is associated with this formless pair. We all three nestled awfully in a corner one wintry day, when the wind was blowing shrill with Miss Frost's pinafore over our heads, and Miss Frost told us in a whisper about somebody being screwed down. 
it is the only distinct recollection we preserve of those impalpable creatures except a suspicion that the manners of master malls were susceptible of much improvement generally speaking we may observe that whenever we see a child intently occupied with its nose to the exclusion of all other subjects of interest our mind reverts in a flash to master malls but the school that was our school before the railroad came and overthrew it was quite another sort of place we were old enough to be put into virgil when we went there and to get prizes for a variety of polishing on which the rust had long accumulated it was a school of some celebrity in its neighborhood nobody could have said why and we had the honor to attain and hold the eminent position of first boy the master was supposed among us to know nothing and one of the ushers was supposed to know everything we are still inclined to think the first-name supposition perfectly correct we have a general idea that its subject had been in the leather trade and had bought us meaning our school of another proprietor who was immensely learned whether this belief had any real foundation we are not likely ever to know now the only branches of education with which he showed the least acquaintance were ruling and corporally punishing he was always ruling ciphering books with a bloated mahogany ruler or smiting the palms of offenders with the same diabolical instrument or viciously drawing a pair of pantaloons tight with one of his large hands and caning the wearer with the other we have no doubt whatever that this occupation was the principal solace of his existence a profound respect for money pervaded our school which was of course derived from its chief we remember an idiotic google-eyed boy with a big head and half crowns without end who suddenly appeared as a parlor boarder and was rumored to have come by sea from some mysterious part of the earth where his parents rolled in gold he was usually called mister by the chief and was said to feed in the parlor on steaks and gravy likewise to drink currant wine and he openly stated that if rolls and coffee were ever denied him at breakfast he would write home to that unknown part of the globe from which he had come and cause himself to be recalled to the regions of gold he was put into no form or class but learned to loan as little as he liked and he liked very little and there was a belief among us that this was because he was too wealthy to be taken down his special treatment and our vague association of him with the sea and with storms and sharks and coral reefs occasioned the wildest legends to be circulated as his history a tragedy in blank verse was written on the subject if our memory does not deceive us by the hand that now chronicles these recollections in which his father figured as a pirate and was shot for a voluminous catalogue of atrocities first imparting to his wife the secret of the cave in which his wealth was stored and from which his only son's half-crowns now issued dumbledun the boy's name was represented as yet unborn when his brave father met his fate and the despair and grief of mrs dumbledun at that calamity was movingly shadowed forth as having weakened the parlor boarder's mind this production was received with great favor 
and was twice performed with closed doors in the dining-room. But it got wind and was seized as libelous, and brought the unlucky poet into severe affliction. Some two years afterwards, all of a sudden one day, Dumbledon vanished. It was whispered that the chief himself had taken him down to the docks and reshipped him for the Spanish main, but nothing certain was ever known about his disappearance. At this hour we cannot thoroughly disconnect him from California. Our school was rather famous for mysterious pupils. There was another, a heavy young man, with a large double-cased silver watch and a fat knife, the handle of which was a perfect toolbox, who unaccountably appeared one day at a special desk of his own, erected close to that of the chief, with whom he held familiar converse. He lived in the parlor and went out for his walks and never took the least notice of us, even of us, the first boy, unless to give us a deprecatory kick, or grimly to take our hat off and throw it away when he encountered us out of doors, which unpleasant ceremony he always performed as he passed, not even condescending to stop for the purpose. Some of us believed that the classical attainments of this phenomena were terrific, but that his penmanship and arithmetic were defective, and he had come there to mend them. Others, that he was going to set up a school and had paid the chief twenty-five pound down for leave to see our school at work. The gloomier spirits even said that he was going to buy us, against which contingency conspiracies were set on foot for a general defection and running away. However, he never did that. After staying for a quarter, during which period, though closely observed, he was never seen to do anything but make pens out of quills, write small hand in a secret portfolio, and punch the point of the sharpest blade in his knife into his desk all over it. He too disappeared, and his place knew him no more. There was another boy, a fair, meek boy with a delicate complexion and rich curling hair, who we found out, or thought we found out, we have no idea now, and probably had none then, on what grounds, but it was confidently revealed from mouth to mouth, was the son of a viscount who had deserted his lovely mother. It was understood that if he had his rights, he would be worth twenty thousand a year, and that if his mother ever met his father she would shoot him with a silver pistol, which she carried always loaded to the muzzle for that purpose. He was a very suggestive topic. So was a young mulatto who was always believed, though very amiable, to have a dagger about him somewhere. But we think they were both outshone upon the whole by another boy who claimed to have been born on the twenty-ninth of February and to have only one birthday in five years. We suspect this to have been a fiction but he lived upon it all the time he was at our school. The principal currency of our school was slate-pencil. It had some inexplainable value that was never ascertained nor reduced to a standard. To have a great hoard of it was somehow to be rich. We used to bestow it in charity and confer it as a precious boon upon our chosen friends. When the holidays were coming, contributions were solicited for certain boys whose relatives were in India, and who were appealed for under the generic name of holiday stoppers, appropriate marks of remembrance that should enliven and cheer them in their homeless state. Personally, 
we always contributed these tokens of sympathy in the form of a slate pencil, and always felt that it would be a comfort and a treasure to them. Our school was remarkable for white mice. Red poles, linnets, and even canaries were kept in desks, drawers, hat-boxes, and other strange refuges for birds, but white mice were the favorite stock. The boys trained the mice much better than the masters trained the boys. We recall one white mouse who lived in the cover of a Latin dictionary, who ran up ladders, drew Roman chariots, shouldered muskets, turned wheels, and even made a very creditable appearance on the stage as the dog of Montargis. He might have achieved greater things, but for having the misfortune to mistake his way in a triumphal procession to the capital, when he fell into a deep inkstand and was dyed black and drowned. The mice were the occasion of some most ingenious engineering in the construction of their houses and instruments of performance. The famous one belonged to a company of proprietors, some of whom have since made railroads, engines, and telegraphs. The chairman has erected mills and bridges in New Zealand. The usher at our school, who was considered to know everything, as opposed to the chief, who was considered to know nothing, was a bony, gentle-faced, clerical-looking young man in rusty black. It was whispered that he was sweet upon one of Maxby's sisters. Maxby lived close by and was a day-pupil, and further that he favored Maxby. As we remember, he taught Italian to Maxby's sisters on half-holidays. He once went to the play with them and wore a white waistcoat and a rose, which was considered among us equivalent to a declaration. We were of the opinion on that occasion that to the last moment he expected Maxby's father to ask him to dinner at five o'clock, and therefore neglected his own dinner at half-past one and finally got none. We exaggerated in our imaginations the extent to which he punished Maxby's father's cold meat at supper, and we agreed to believe that he was elevated with wine and water when he came home. But we all liked him, for he had a good knowledge of boys, and would have made it a much better school if he had had any more power. He was writing master, mathematical master, English master, made out the bills, mended the pens, and did all sorts of things. He divided the little boys with the Latin master. They were smuggled through their rudimentary books at odd times when there was nothing else to do. And he always called at parents' houses to inquire after sick boys, because he had gentlemanly manners. He was rather musical, and on some remote quarter-day had bought an old trombone, but a bit of it was lost, and it made the most extraordinary sounds when he sometimes tried to play it of an evening. His holidays never began on account of the bills until long after ours, but in the summer vacations he used to take pedestrian excursions with a knapsack, and at Christmas time he went to see his father at Chipping Norton, who, we all said, on no authority, was a dairy-fed pork-butcher. Poor fellow! He was very low all day on Maxby's sister's wedding day and afterwards was thought to favor Maxby more than ever, though he had been expected to spite him. He has been dead these twenty years, poor fellow. Our remembrance of our school presents the Latin master as a colorless, doubled-up, near-sighted man with a crutch, 
who was always cold and always putting onions into his ears for deafness, and always disclosing ends of flannel under all his garments, and almost always applying a ball of pocket-handkerchief to some part of his face with a screwing action round and round. He was a very good scholar, and took great pains where he saw intelligence and a desire to learn. Otherwise, perhaps not. Our memory presents him, unless teased into a passion, with as little energy as color, as having been worried and tormented into monotonous feebleness, as having had the best part of his life ground out of him in a mill of boys. We remember with terror how he fell asleep one sultry afternoon with the little smuggled class before him, and awoke not when the footstep of the chief fell heavy on the floor, how the chief aroused him in the midst of a dread silence and said, "'Mr. Blinkins, are you ill, sir?' How he blushingly replied, "'Sir, rather so.' How the chief retorted with severity, "'Mr. Blinkins, this is no place to be ill in,' which was very, very true, and walked back solemn as the ghost in Hamlet, until, catching a wandering eye, he called that boy for inattention, and happily expressed his feelings toward the Latin master through the medium of a substitute. There was a fat little dancing master who used to come in a gig and taught the more advanced among us hornpipes, as an accomplishment in great social demand in after life. And there was a brisk little French master who used to come in the sunniest weather with a handleless umbrella, and to whom the chief was always polite, because, as we believed, if the chief offended him, he would instantly address the chief in French, and forever confound him before the boys with his inability to understand or reply. There was, besides, a serving-man whose name was Phil. Our retrospective glance presents Phil as a shipwrecked carpenter, cast away upon the desert island of a school, and carrying into practice an ingenious inkling of many trades. He mended whatever was broken, and made whatever was wanted. He was General Glazier, among other things, and mended all the broken windows, at the prime cost, as was darkly rumored among us, of ninepence, for every square charged three and six to parents. We had a high opinion of his mechanical genius, and generally held that the chief knew something bad of him, and, on pain of divulgence, enforced Phil to be his bondsman. We particularly remember that Phil had a sovereign contempt for learning, which engenders in us a respect for his sagacity, as it implies his accurate observation of the relative positions of the chief and the ushers. He was an impenetrable man, who waited at table between whiles, and throughout the half kept the boxes in severe custody. He was morose, even to the chief, and never smiled, except at breaking up, when, in acknowledgment of the toast, "'Success to Phil! Hooray!' he would slowly carve a grin out of his wooden face, where it would remain until we were all gone. Nevertheless, one time, when we had the scarlet fever in the school, Phil nursed all the sick boys of his own accord, and was like a mother to them. There was another school not far off, and, of course, our school could have nothing to say to that school. 
It is mostly the way with schools, whether of boys or men. Well, the railway has swallowed up ours, and the locomotives now run smoothly over its ashes. So fades and languishes, grows dim and dies, all that this world is proud of. And is not proud of, too. It had little reason to be proud of our school, and has done much better since in that way, and will do far better yet. End Our of section seventeen. From reprinted pieces. Charles Dickens' two hundredth anniversary collection, volume two, by Charles Dickens. Our school. Recording by Joyce Martin.